0: book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah in chapter 29. Chapter 29. As you turn there, let me remind you what we have already seen. We've seen that Christians are aliens and exiles in this world. This, This world is not our home. We belong to a different creation. We are new creation people. This new creation is coming in the future, but, but here we are as new creation people in an old creation world. And since we are pilgrims in this world, how are we to live while we are here? And we said last time that we must reject the approach of isolationism. It is not the right approach to shut ourselves off from this world. But at the same time, we must reject the approach of worldliness. We cannot adopt the patterns of this world, the the mindset, the values, the sinful practices of this world. And so, as pilgrims in this life, There must be a way to relate to the world around us that is somewhere in between isolationism and worldliness. And we are coming to Jeremiah 29 to learn what that middle path looks like. It it makes sense to look at this passage. What we have here is a letter written by Jeremiah to the exiles in Babylon while Zedekiah is ruling over Judah. And so there are over 10,000 of God's people now living in a foreign city, the city of Babylon. They are exiles there, away from their home. and They'll be there for some time. What we have in this letter is Jeremiah's counsel and indeed his very word from God concerning how these people should live in that ungodly culture during their time of exile. And so this letter fits our situation very well. It teaches us as Christians how we are to live while we are exiles here in this world. We saw last time that Jeremiah is writing this letter for two reasons. First, he is writing to repudiate the false prophets. You heard that sentiment even in Jeremiah 27 a while ago. This, don't listen to the prophets. These men were claiming that the exile would be short. These false prophets were saying to the exiles, don't unpack your bags, don't settle in in Babylon. You'll be coming home very soon, within two years. Jeremiah exposes these prophets as the false prophets that they were. And we're not to put our hope in pipe dreams and false promises. Here in our exile, Jesus can come back for us any moment. He he may come back tomorrow. He may come back tonight. But until He does, we are expected to live here on earth as if this will be our home for a while. We are to make the most of our pilgrimage here for His glory. But then secondly, Jeremiah is writing to encourage these exiles. He he wants them to know that while their homecoming will not be as soon as the false prophets are proclaiming, God is going to bring them home. They will not be pilgrims forever. This is our hope as Christians. Our time of exile will come to an end for many of us. It will end when we die and see our Savior's face. But ultimately, this pilgrimage will end when Jesus comes back and inaugurates the new heavens and the new earth. That's when we will be truly home. And That is our hope as Christians. Now tonight, we are going to dig into the meat of Jeremiah's letter. And so what I want to do is walk through verses 4 through 7, in which Jeremiah gives specific instructions concerning how God's people are to live while they are exiles in an ungodly society. And as we go along, we're going to note a number of principles that can help us. So look first at verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So this is the introduction to Jeremiah's letter to the exiles. And this opening sentence makes clear that this letter isn't really from Jeremiah at all. This is God speaking to His people in exile. And notice that the opening sentence of this letter doesn't just refer to God as God. God calls himself the Lord of hosts. He calls himself the God of Israel. And following the pattern of a letter, he tells who he is writing to. And he doesn't just refer to these people that he's writing to as exiles, he calls them the exiles whom I have sent into exile. So from this opening verse alone, I see three principles. Three principles for us. First, see that God reminds His people in exile of His immense power. God reminds His people in exile of His immense power. This is not just God speaking. This is the Lord of hosts. You may not realize this. We we sing that title Quite often, indeed, we sing it this morning in the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Because we sing, I would try to sing it, but I probably won't hit the right notes. Lord Sabaoth, His name. Do you remember singing that this morning? Lord Sabaoth, His name, from age to age the same, and He must win the battle. That word Sabaoth is the Hebrew word that we translate as of Hosts. Lord Sabaoth means the Lord of hosts. Martin Luther says in that hymn, how do we know that we will have the ultimate victory over that great enemy Satan? We know it because God has sent a victor. Lord Sabaoth is His name. He is the Lord of hosts and He will win the battle. So who are these hosts that God is referring to when He calls Himself the Lord of hosts? Mainly, this seems to be a reference to the hosts of angels that are at God's command. God is the Lord of angel armies. With one command, a million, million angels will do His bidding, fighting for His name and for His purpose. Never has there been an army like the army of the angels of heaven. Never has there been a Lord of an army Like the Lord our God. Here is the great I Am. The great I Am is sovereign over all the mighty beings of heaven. This title, the Lord of Hosts, is very common in the Bible. It occurs over 200 times. But the reason this title for God was so important is it separated Israel from all the other peoples of the world. All the other peoples of the world worshipped a variety of spirits, a variety of powers, a variety of supernatural deities. But Israel believed that these powers, these spirits, these deities, they weren't divine gods at all. They were, in fact, angels. And they believed that there was only one true God who created every angel and that He is sovereign over them all. So when other religions were putting their trust in this pagan deity or that pagan deity, they were actually putting their trust in a created being, a a creature, an angel. But Yahweh, He is the Lord of angels. No angel is a match for Him. Indeed, all the hosts of heaven do His will. So can you see why this title would be comforting to the people of Israel in exile in Babylon? Yes, they're under the rule of a pagan people. But they are not there because Babylon's gods are stronger than Israel's God. No, if Israel's God chose to do so, He could send His mighty hosts and He could set them free from their exile in a millisecond. The God of Israel is mightier than any power Babylon can claim. And therefore, God's people are not in exile by accident. They are where they are according to His sovereign will. More on that in a moment. But the point is, God is encouraging His people by reminding them that He is still the supreme power in the universe. Number two. God reminds his people in exile of his loyalty to them. Of his loyalty to them. He calls himself the God of Israel. And you can see why this would be an encouragement to them. I mean, they might have been thinking that their God had forsaken them. Here they are uh, along the, the, the rivers in Babylon, and they might have been thinking, Our God has cast us off. We sinned so greatly. We fell into such idolatry and immorality. And yet God says, no. They are still His people. He is still their God. Oh yes, they are under discipline. They are under judgment for their sin. But this is not utter judgment. He is not casting them away forever. He is still with them, even in their exile. And as He is humbling them now, He will again bring them back home and exalt them. Put these two points together, and what is God saying to us? He is reminding us that there is no power in this universe that is mightier than our God, and He is committed to our welfare. Isn't that a wonderful thing? What do you fear tonight? What is causing you anxiety or worry? Is it the threat of terrorism? Is it some disease or sickness? Is it the anti-Christian sentiment that you see growing around us in our culture? Are you afraid that there is some some conflict or some debt or some relationship in which you're going to be overwhelmed? Whatever it is in your life. Hear this word from God written to you in your exile. He is more powerful than anything that threatens you and He is for you. He is your God, dear Christian, and He will sustain you, and He will care for you, and in His time, He will bring you safely home. And So don't doubt it. And then there's the third principle we see in verse 4. I hinted at it a while ago. It's this. God reminds His people in exile of His perfect will. Of His perfect will. Oh, it would be terrible if God's people thought this way. Our God is against us being in exile. Our God loves His people and He wants us to be blessed and He would never desire for us to be here in exile, but our poor God, He just got beat. His will was overcome and now despite His best efforts, we ha- His people have been taken to Babylon. That's a very weak God an impotent God, that kind of God is not a comfort for hurting people. To go to people in their affliction and sickness and say, oh, God would never will for you to be this way. Well, then what happened? Is there something stronger than God that brought this about? That's not biblical language and it's not comforting language. God is reminding people in this letter, you are not in exile by accident. I have not been beaten. My will has not been thwarted. What does He say in verse 4? It is He who sent His people into exile. He brought His people from Jerusalem to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar and all His greatness, the Babylonians and all their glory, they are palms in the hands of God. They are tools being used to accomplish His purpose. The people of Judah had turned to immorality. They had turned to idolatry. They had turned away from God. They no longer feared God. They no longer reverenced God. They no longer had any real regard for God. And Just as He had promised through Jeremiah and other prophets, a season of discipline has come. God's people are being reminded that He is to be feared. He is to be reverenced. He is to be regarded. Nebuchadnezzar has not thwarted the will of God. Just the opposite. He is unknowingly fulfilling the will of God. And everything that is happening here is happening according to God's good, wise, and perfect plan. Mount Herman, you might wonder why God placed you in this part of the world at this time in human history. You might have wished that you lived during the earlier years of our country when a, a greater percentage of America loved the Lord Jesus and professed His name. Do you ever think about that? Why are you here now? Why are you here at this point in history? Well, of this much you can be sure, you are here now because God has willed for you to be here now. You are exactly where God wants you to be. It is no accident that you live when you do and where you do. God has placed us here for such a time as this. Trusting in God's perfect will, believing that God makes no mistakes, we will find courage to live well during our time of exile in this old creation world. Now, after that tender and wonderful encouragement from God, He gives His instruction to His people. So look at our next verse, verse 5. Here, it gets very practical. How are we to live in this world while we are in exile? Verse 5, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. What is God saying there? Listen to Matthew Henry. He says, By all this it is intimated to them that they must not feed their hopes, must not feed themselves with hopes of a speedy return out of their captivity, for that would keep them still unsettled and consequently uneasy. They would apply themselves to no business, take no comfort, but be always tiring themselves and provoking their conquerors with the expectations of relief. And their disappointment at last would sink them into despair and make their condition much more miserable than otherwise it would be. Let them therefore reckon upon a continuance there and accommodate themselves to it as well as they can." So while Babylon is not their true home, God is telling the Jews to expect to be there for a while. He tells them later in this letter, expect to be there for 70 years. Settle in a bit. Make accommodations for yourselves. In fact, what we have here is the command of God for His people to continue to fulfill the dominion mandate even while they wait to go home. That's the main principle I see in verse 5. We are to continue to fulfill the dominion mandate even while we wait to go home. Do you remember the, the dominion mandate? This is the mandate that God gave to Adam right after He created him. God said to Adam, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Adam and all mankind after him was to care for the earth, work the earth, cultivate the earth. Science, art, agriculture, technology. God called His people to do good with His creation, to steward it well, to bring good from it. But someone among the exiles might say that since they're no longer in their home country since they're waiting to go home, maybe they should slow down on this mandate. Maybe they should hold off on fulfilling these commands. In our case, a Christian might say something like this, this world is now a fallen, cursed world. We are in a a pagan world, a pagan society. This world is not going to last. This, This ground that I'm standing on, one day it's going to be consumed with fire. It's the new earth. It's the new creation. That's where we will one day get to live and cultivate and develop. Maybe the dominion mandate isn't any longer to be kept here on this earth. Maybe we should just do as little as possible while waiting for the kingdom to come. But God's response to that is very clear. While we are here, we are to continue to build houses and plant gardens and eat of our produce We are to continue to work the earth and to fulfill the dominion mandate. In fact, what do we learn in the New Testament? We are to not only work in this world, we are to work as unto the Lord. We are to have a kind of work ethic that shows to the world that we are working for a greater master than any on this earth. This world is not our home. This world is the home of unbelievers, but we're still to outdo them in the way we work in this world. We are to enjoy working hard, knowing that in doing so, we are imitating our God who does all things well. It is important that we as Christians always keep these two ideas together. Number one, we must always remember that everything on this earth is going to be destroyed. We must always remember that this earth is going to be destroyed. Only the Word of God and people last forever. All the stuff of this world. All the stuff, good, bad, or indifferent, all the stuff of this world, it's all temporary. We should never make an idol out of anything like houses and lands. (laughs) Church discipline right now, y'all ready? All right. (laughs) All right. We should never make an idol out of anything in this world because everything in this world is fading. It is temporary, and if we put our hopes, our trust, our adoration, it will prove folly. If we value these things too highly, we will one day look back and realize how foolish we have been. So that's true. Don't put your trust in the stuff of this world, but we must also always remember that God has called us nevertheless to work hard in this world and to glorify Him in the fulfillment of our callings. And so while we are not to overvalue this world, it's not our eternal home, we are still to be faithful in the way we live here until the day our Lord Jesus Christ comes back. And so, Christians are to build houses and they're to be Well done, houses. Christians are to plant gardens. And they're to be excellent gardens. And we're to fulfill the dominion mandate while we're here. Look with me at verse 6. Verse 6, because here we learn, not only are we to continue to fulfill the dominion mandate, but family life is to continue as well. Family life is to continue as well. Verse 6, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. So, God tells these exiles in Babylon, not only should you build houses there and plant gardens, but marriage is to continue and childbearing is to continue. Through these two things, family life is to continue, marriage and childbearing. First note what the passage says about marriage. At the beginning of verse 6, exiled Israelite men are told to take wives for themselves and to have children. Then God tells these men to take wives for their sons and to give their daughters in marriage so that they may have children. Now... I just love Calvin's comment on this verse because it shows how much times have changed in the way we think about finding a spouse. Calvin says, In bidding them to take wives for their sons and to give their daughters in marriage, he speaks according to the usual order of nature, for it would be altogether unreasonable for young men and young women to seek partners for themselves, according to their own humor and fancy. God then speaks here according to the common order of things when he bids young men not to be otherwise joined in marriage than by the consent of their parents, and that young women are not to marry any but those to whom they are given. Isn't it interesting how much our world's thinking has changed about what is the normal, natural order of things and how to find a spouse? We often forget that arranged marriages or marriages in which the parents led the way in making the match, that was the norm for most of history in most cultures. It was certainly the norm for Israel. And now because of the exile, we have some young Israelite men in Babylon whose parents are hundreds of miles away. The parents can't help their sons enter into marriage. It's up to the sons themselves. And so verse 6 begins by telling these men, take wives for yourselves. But for those who were in exile who had sons and daughters, and for those who would later have sons and daughters, God tells them to help their children enter into marriage by taking wives for their sons and giving their daughters in marriage. How are we to think about this? But at the very least, I think this should remind us of the importance of parents having a role in the marriage of their children. Remember Genesis 24, how Isaac never even saw Rebekah till the day he married her. Abraham gave the responsibility of finding a good wife for Isaac to his trusted servant. It was assumed that what was needed for a good marriage was not romance or physical attraction, but that a person be found of good character. It was assumed that parents tended to be better suited than their children in discerning a good spouse. Now when we think about the ultimate marriage, the marriage, Christ's marriage to His church, we do find that Christ chose His own bride. Spurgeon says, "...a man may surely choose his own wife." For Christ chose His own spouse. He chose His own church. And while Scripture stands, that doctrine can never be eradicated from it. And He is right. Jesus chose His bride. But at the same time, the bride that Jesus chose was equally chosen by the Father. Uh, The Father set His electing love on them before the foundation of the earth. And so the teaching of the Bible seems to be that Father and Son together as one God chose the church, the bride. And so in the Trinity, we see a picture of father and son united together in selecting a spouse. In our day, dating has become the main way people find a spouse. Um, this is a really new experiment, really new After more than 10,000 years of the arranged marriage model, or at least of parents being greatly involved, dating has been around for a whole 80 to 90 years. It's really, really new in the history of mankind. And so far, I think the results state for themselves how well it's going. Many marriages formed this way are not lasting. And it's proving to be a morally dangerous way for young people to look for a spouse and so i would suggest that any young person and look i have some in here tonight i would suggest that any young person who is looking for a spouse that they would be wise to consult with their parents to consult with other godly adults we should want other mature christians speaking into our lives as we go through the process of looking for a spouse A Christian young person should be willing to hear and consider what parents and other mature Christians would tell them about do's and don'ts in relationships. This young person should be willing to hear both the encouragements and the warnings offered to them. Indeed, the Christian young person should seek out the counsel of others and want to know their opinion about the proposed marriage. Young love can make us blind to what everybody else can see. And so let us learn to rely on godly parents or at least other Christian adults as we pursue a godly spouse. Now, notice that not only is marriage to continue while we are in exile, but childbearing is to continue as well. Multiplication is to continue. This was part of that dominion mandate that God gave to Adam in the very beginning. God's mandate began, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And therefore, even though this world is not our home, we are to continue to bear children and to multiply. Now as Christians, this applies to us in two ways. First, certainly we are to pursue physical multiplication through Christian childbearing. This doesn't mean that childbearing is for everyone. It isn't God's will for every Christian to marry. It isn't God's will for every Christian couple to have children. But Christian married couples should be open to having children should God give them. And by the way, we should note here the connection between hope and childbearing. People who are discouraged and hopeless concerning the world tend not to have children. But people who are encouraged and hopeful do tend to be open to having children. It is no accident that secular people have fewer children than Christians. Those who hold a secular perspective of this world, a view that says that there is no design, there is no meaning, there is no purpose to it all, they tend to have fewer children than those who believe in a sovereign, good, and wise God. Already in America, we are not having enough children to replace the current generation. Throughout Europe, and especially in Russia and Eastern Asia, birth rates are way, way down. But Muslims are having many children because they have hope in a day when Islam will be a world religion. Christians are to have children as well, but for a different reason. Yes, we believe that Children from Christian families are more likely to trust the Lord Jesus Christ themselves and and be salt and light in this world. But we also believe that life is inherently a good and wonderful thing. God is glorified in every new life. Every new baby is a testimony to the power and goodness and the wisdom of God. Every new baby is a declaration of how amazing our God is. But this command to multiply while we are in exile has a second application for us. In the Old Testament, God's people multiplied through reproduction. But in the New Testament, God's people, the church, reproduce in a different way. It is through the gospel that people are added to the kingdom of Christ. It is through evangelism, it is through missions that God's family grows and more people are brought to know of His love and His mercy. And therefore, while we are in this world, yes, we're to build houses, we're to plant gardens, we're to have marriages, we're to bear children, but we're also to pursue spiritual multiplication by sharing the gospel. We are to live in this world as witnesses to Christ, sharing the good news with those who will listen. And we're going to stop here because we're going to spend our next two messages, our last two messages in this series, solely on verse 7. But I want you to think about what we've seen so far. We're asking the question, how are we to live as exiles in this world? This is not our home. This, this culture around us is so different from our values. How are we to live? And so far the answer has been wonderfully simple. Simple. We are to trust our God, who is powerful, who is loyal to his people, who has placed us right here, right now, according to his perfect plan. And trusting him, what are we to do? We're to fulfill our callings. We're to live regular lives. We're to live in houses. We're to do what we need to do to meet the basic needs that we have. We're to have families. To pursue family life. Put the way Paul puts it in the New Testament, we are to seek to live quiet, godly, dignified lives. And along the way, as God gives us opportunity, we're to speak to people about the Lord Jesus Christ. And through all of this, God will be doing us good. But God will also be doing the community around us and the people around us good. Evangelism and missions, being salt and light in this world, it doesn't begin with something really, really hard, at least in an outward sense. It begins with this. Do what people do. Live your life, but do so in a way that honors Christ. Fulfill your callings, but do so in a way that honors Christ. Care for your family, but do so in a way that honors Christ. And as you have opportunity... Share the gospel with others. We'll see more next time.